Hey everybody, I'm Graham Rutherford, I'm an alcoholic. Yeah. My sobriety date's October the 19th, 1997. Uh, I'm not from around here. <laughs> I live in Chesapeake, Virginia, in the swamp. And you guys all talk funny down here in North Carolina. Anyway, I'm not sure how this is gonna go. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about the committee, I thought it was just Jerry. Yeah, I don't talk to anyone else. Okay, anyway, moving on. So, uh, you know, what a wonderful conference it's been today. Uh, I always feel like at this time in the afternoon, the lunch crowd has come and gone. And this is the real bottom feeders in here. This is the people like me who are desperate for recovery to stay at this point in the event. And uh, my, you know, over the years, my sponsors have always told me participate in the whole event, you know, and try to stay for the whole event. And I talked to uh, this guy right here right before the meeting, and he was like, you know, you never know what you could miss if you don't come in the morning or you don't come in the afternoon. But after this talk, you're probably going to wish you did just go home. <laughs> okay, so the home group. I thought a lot about this, and, you know, I thought also about how AA is a lot about the joy of living, you know, and, and I also thought about a power greater than me, you know, God, whatever you want to call it, and where I've experienced that, I actually had an experience of it, not an intellectual idea, but I actually experienced it, and it's really in the home group, a lot of it. So anyway, I want to go back, because I also thought, you know, I've always been in a group, I've always been in a group. My first group was when I was a little kid, I was in this group called My Family. Now my dad is a horrible man. I, 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 he didn't like me, and I didn't like him. Uh, I couldn't wait to get out of that house. I spent a lot of time away from the house. He was so abusive. And uh, my mom is like a depressed lady that just sits in front of the TV. You could stab yourself in front of her and she'd look around you to see what's on the TV. So that's how I grew up. I'm not going to sugarcoat it, but I want to be clear that it did not make me an alcoholic. I have three sisters who were in the house and were also treated that way, and none of them are alcoholics. There are those people, my sister Leslie, I did talk to her about this one time after I got sober. Leslie will take a couple of drinks at a party. She starts to feel it, and that's when she decides to back off. She says she feels like she's losing control. When I start to feel it, that's when I lean in and I want a lot more drinks. And I find it exciting not knowing what's gonna happen. I, I, I kind of get wild, you know? Uh, so, anyway, that was the first group I was in. I didn't like it. And I really became a loner as a little boy. I would spend hours on my own and uh, we grew up on the outskirts of a big city called Glasgow in Scotland, and I, I spent a lot of time in the woods on my own. I would just go off into the woods, and I had some friends sometimes, but I spent a lot of time away from the house. I didn't like being in the house. Uh, so the next group that I really remember is round about the time I started drinking. I was 13 years old when I drank. I got sober when I was 25, I'm 47 now. And uh, I just want to put this out there. I was at a meeting the other day, and 
the alcoholics in the meeting were arguing about relapse, you know, and I'm not going to get into that, but I never relapsed. I'm a one-chip wonder. I, I got sober before I went to AA, curled up in a ball on the floor crying because I promised I wasn't going to drink, and I drank, and it was a disaster again. And the people in AA saved my life. So I was with a bunch of guys. The first time I drank, we stole some booze off my dad. My dad used to make his own wine. He was very, very bad at making wine. And, but he had lots of it, because it was like his hobby. So he didn't actually really drink very much, but he made a loads and loads of wine. And uh, so this is my relationship with alcohol at 13 years old. Me and my friend Craig Todd, we steal a, I steal a bottle of the wine so we can go and get drunk. So we take it down to the elementary school we used to go to. It was a day like today, it was at night time, it was cold and rainy, it's always cold and rainy in Scotland, don't ever go there. Uh, anyway, we, we didn't have a corkscrew so we smashed the top off the bottle and we drank this stuff and it was absolutely disgusting. And then the most incredible thing happened. And I think for the first time ever in my life, I felt happy. I felt happy, I felt confident, I felt safe, and above all, I felt I didn't care. And this feeling of joy got stronger and stronger. And I remember rolling around on the playground, which was soaking wet, just rolling around laughing. And that, up until that point in my life, that was the most joy I had ever felt in my life. And that's why I drank because it makes me full of joy. At least it did at that time. And I had no idea what I was doing at that time as I was throwing out a boomerang. Ha 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 ha. Off it goes. And I didn't realize that 12 years later it was, all, it was going to come back and it was almost going to kill me. And I can't tell you guys how many times I almost died drinking, blackouts. I'm a violent alcoholic, so I, I like to get violent with people. I'm not some street fighter, okay? I'm a coward, so I'm a violent coward. So the victims of my violence would be like my girlfriend when we were in the house after the party or whatever. The, the house, I like smashing houses up when I'm drunk. And, you know, just being very menacing, belligerent, mean. But men, fighting men, no thanks, you know? I want to keep this looking good. <laughs> the other thing I don't like is work. I don't like working. I've never been a guy that really liked work. I always like can't figure out people that say they love work. I'm like, what? These hands are soft as a baby bum. Let's keep them that way. Anyway, I digress. So I'm, so I'm in this group of boys now. We're all 13, 14, and that's when I began drinking on a landfill site. We used to have a land, there was a landfill site in the town I grew up in. It was a big landfill site. They'd been putting trash in there for years. And it was safe because there was a big fence around it, and the police couldn't get their car in at night time. The town I grew up in, there's only one police car and two police officers. And they really only go out on Saturday night to try and catch the kids drinking in the woods. It's like a big sport for them. So we could see their little car and we would just all run into the woods, you know. But anyway, 
What I want to tell you guys is the joy that I experienced in the group with those boys. We would, it would be thirsty, we would all be excited, we'd all be stealing money from our houses to get the money, you know? And then the tallest one would go into the grocery store that was run by an Asian gentleman, and he would sell alcohol to like a five-year-old kid. <laughs> and, you know, the, so the kid would go in and maybe have a few hairs on his top lip and a bunch of pimples. This, kid, this guy's name was Mark, and Mark would go in and he would come out with like 67 cans of beer, you know, and he would pay for it all in like coins and all that. And we'd all be standing there in a big crowd grabbing the booze. And I can't tell you how excited I was. And that group was so, it was such an oasis for me to have that connection with those other boys. I really had a real problem with never having a connection with people. I always felt separate from everybody. I hated myself. And alcohol, when I would drink alcohol with those guys, I was part of that group. Alcohol brought joy into my life. It made me feel close with people. It made me feel I was a part of that group. The same as those guys, one of those guys. And I didn't feel that the rest of the time. I want to fast forward, I'm now 18, 19 years old. Uh, I've been drinking with those guys since I was 13. So I was in that home group for five or six years. <laughs> and I was very dedicated. <laughs> I never missed a meeting night. <laughs> and uh, so I would show up for the meeting and we would get absolutely hammered in the, on the landfill site. And then we would try to pretend we were sober and get in the school disco, you know? And standing on those stairs, pretending you're not absolutely trashed. And uh, anyway, so the thing, that, the thing that happened was, now we could get into nightclubs in Glasgow, the big cities. So we would take the bus in on a Friday or a Saturday night. And we would go into this uh, student union or a bar, but usually a nightclub where there was dancing. And the goal was, you know, to try and meet some young ladies. That was the goal. So there'd be like 10 of us would go, or six of us. But what was happening to me is, the guys were trying to, you know, make some moves. And I would be so drunk that I would maybe, my moves would be maybe urinating on myself. <laughs> or vomiting. Or aggressively talking to women in the bar. And this went on for a while. And then I remember this night like it was yesterday. As usual, it was raining. I think we were all smoking weed and drinking. It was a weak night, so we weren't going really hard. And this guy called Kenny, who was kind of the leader of the group, he spoke on behalf of the group. And he said, listen, you're really, really weird. And he said, you can't hang out with us anymore. We don't want to hang out with you. You're too weird. And that broke my heart. They kicked me out, and that was it. And from that point on, I became a lone wolf. And I think I was about 18, 19 years old. And now it was just me. There was a few friends that when they didn't have anywhere else to drink, they would come to my parents' house where I lived, and we'd go up into my room, and they would bring booze, and we would get hammered together. But other than that, I was pretty much on my own. There was a few other sets of people I would use when they had money or I had money. And that's kind of how I lived. I was very, very angry. I was very resentful. And life was passing me by. 
People were getting on with their lives and I couldn't do that. And there was no joy in my life. I was back to having no joy. Alcohol stopped bringing the joy pretty early on with me. What it brought was drunkenness and then a blackout. That was what happened almost every time I drank. I'm a binge drinker, there's different types of alcoholics. I'm a guy that would usually drink on Friday night and Saturday night, and then as I got older, of course, I discovered the magic of the morning drink, and it's goodbye hangover. Fantastic. No more hangovers ever again. Just get drunk in the morning. It's wonderful. So, it went on like that for a while. It was really rough. Uh, I became more violent in these blackouts, and, uh, and I'm not really part of a group at all. I went to college. The only reason I went to college is, I told you I don't like working. Uh, so my friend, Mad Mick, he was in college, and he was like, you need to come to college. So the way I chose my college degree and my whole career path was a guy who liked to drink like me was going to college to avoid getting a job, and I did the same degree that he did. That's how I made that life decision. So now I'm in the group with the college kids, so I grow my hair long, you know, and I'm kind of a rebel now, but, I, but what I managed to do was I managed to get through college. But in that time there was people, again, that offered me friendship, they offered me fellowship, and unfortunately I, the, my best friend at college, a guy called Ted, he was one of those guys I could never understand. He was taller than me. In Scotland, they drink pints of beer, warm, dark beer, okay? We don't even have ice over there, unless it's on the inside of your window in the winter. <laughs> and uh, so, so this guy was huge, but he could drink like eight, 10 pints of beer on a weeknight. And he'd have his arm around his girlfriend, her name's Mari, and they'd be standing laughing and everybody would be having a good time and then they would go off up the road together and next morning he'd be in class at 9 a.m. ready to go. Me, I would drink half of that or less and I would be absolutely a mess, you know, falling about, doing crazy stuff. And I could never understand that. Him and I became friends and after a few years he invited me into this kind of group of friends he'd had since he was in elementary school. And I went along there, I got drunk, I made a fool of him, I stole some things, I behaved, I, I think at one point I was at the top of a tree and they couldn't get me to come down, screaming at the moon or something. <laughs> I don't really remember any of this, and the next day we drove back in the car and nobody talked to me. And then he, that was the end of our friendship. He would never, you know, and, and this guy, give him credit, he said to me, Graham, there's people who are alcoholics, I really think you're an alcoholic. And he just went like this. Why is he saying that to me? Weirdo. <laughs> so, I just went on like that. So, college, I'm a loner again. And I, and I was in a really abusive relationship. My college sweetheart, who to this day, just like Ted, never talked to me again. It was so horrible and mean and nasty and abusive to her. Uh, and it was an absolute nightmare. I identified some of the speakers were talking about feeling suicidal. I was feeling suicidal all the time. Lying in bed, in between the binges, staring at the wall, thinking everybody would be better off if I just died. But I was too much of a coward to kill myself. And that's kind of where I was at. 
through my college years. It was a nightmare. I didn't know what was wrong with me. Someone, I think it was Sammy, was talking about not knowing what was wrong with her and not knowing there was people called alcoholics. I was the same. I thought I was evil and insane. I thought I was like the prince of darkness and just crazy based on my behavior. And that's actually not a really wrong conclusion. I, I was doing evil things and I was crazy. You know, that's what alcoholism does to me. And I want to stress, it wasn't just when I was drinking. It's not like I was drinking and I was a monster and the rest of the time I'm this really nice guy. No. What happened to me is my character, I just kind of rotted from the inside. And as, as time went on, I became more and more sick. The world became darker and darker. My hatred for myself and other people got stronger and stronger. I became an atheist probably at the age of 13 when I started drinking. And uh, I, it's funny, I read this book years later, or maybe it was a speaker that I heard in AA, and I was so angry. I was such an angry person, really furious with life, with people, with everything. What a disappointment this planet is. What a disappointment this century is. What a disappointment people are. Why couldn't I have been born in the time when there was pirates and I could have been a pirate on a ship with a, you know, and just chop some people up. Get some of that aggression out. But no, I'm stuck in like 1990s Scotland. Are you kidding me? Oh, it's raining again, big surprise. Yeah. So anyway, uh, just really miserable. Really, really miserable, really, really depressed and really full of self-pity and an atheist, an angry atheist. And what I heard that speaker say was, and it really, I connected with it, the reason I was so angry and the reason I believed I was an atheist, I was angry because I couldn't find God. I couldn't find joy. I couldn't find peace of mind. I could never find that. I wanted it and I couldn't find it. And what I discovered was I was looking for it in a bottle and in a joint, and in the drug dealers, whatever. And that's where I was at when my mother suggested I get a job in Japan. <laughs> so I go home one day, I'm in my last year of college, my mother's like this size, she's tiny, and she has suffered her whole life, poor woman. Uh, she's a very gentle person, she's very gentle and she's very sweet. Uh, so of course I hated her. Uh, and in those days they had these things called newspapers. So I think there's some millennials in here, so I'll back up. So it's like a giant piece of paper with writing and pictures. Right? Okay. And that's what these things called jobs would be. So mom's sitting there with this giant paper and she looks up and she says, there's jobs in Japan in here. You should go for one of them. And I was like, that's so I did, I applied. And I, you know, I graduated college. So I, I, I want to stress, I, I, I heard this at the meeting, this lady the other day, she said, we alcoholics are above average intelligence. And then I heard this other guy saying, the only place you'll hear that is in AA. <laughs> So I graduate college and I get this job in Japan. 
and in July 97, I'm on this plane in London Heathrow Airport, it's a giant big Boeing, uh, the company I'm working for paid for me to fly, business class baby. <laughs> I'm not back in economy, I'm in business class with those plush seats and I've got a suit on that my mom and dad paid for. They gave me a few thousand dollars, you know, and, uh, and, and I'm flying and I can't remember, I can't tell you what was going through my mind. What was going through my mind was those people in Scotland are losers. My college sweetheart, loser. Those guys I hung out with, losers. Look at me. Look at me. I'm finally going to get out of that and my life is beginning today and I was 25 years old. I didn't know, I was soon to find out, alcohol, unlimited alcohol is free in business class. You can drink as much as you want. So I got trashed on the plane, I met another guy from Scotland, him and I were partying through the night on the way to Japan. The people in business class who paid for their own ticket were angry because we had, you know, two clowns that shouldn't be there or there, drunk. So the, the, the stewardess split us up. So we weren't allowed to be together because people were trying to sleep. So, you know, I arrive in Japan. I'll never forget the moment the plane door opens and this really humid, hot air rushes into the plane. And there's all these people very nicely dressed, bowing. A lot of bowing going on. And there I was. So. So I'm not in any group at all at this point in my life. I'm alone. And it's halfway there, so I should get sober, right, Jerry? So I'm in Japan now. There's no relationship to blame. There's no parents to blame. Uh, I tried a lot of ways to shape up and be a nice guy. I'd just come off a year in therapy. Uh, met my inner child. You know, he just seems angry all the time. And, uh, you know, I, I also tried religion as well. I went to the island of Iona, which is a holy island off the coast of Scotland. I spent a summer there. St. Columba brought Christianity there in 560-something. And I went there and asked God to help me, and in my mind, nothing happened. But that's important, because this was four or five years later, and listen to what happened. And this is an atheist. I, at this time, am an atheist. Anybody that says God, I automatically hate them and think they're an idiot. And more than that, I might try and punish you if I'm wrong. I hate any God talk. As far as I'm concerned, it's dog spelled backwards. It's nonsense. So, I'm in Japan now, boozing it up. Guess what? Japanese people love to drink. They love to get absolutely hammered. They get hammered even more than people do in America. They're like Scottish people that live in Japan. <laughs> so, anyway, they're all getting drunk and I'm getting drunk. And this is what's happening now when I drink. I'm having like two drinks, two small drinks, and I'm going straight into a blackout. And I'm coming out the blackout and I'm standing screaming at some frightened looking Japanese lady in the street. I have no idea where I am. I wake up again that night, I'm in the back of a cab with two people I don't know and we're going to a party. I wake up again and I'm vomiting on the windshield of a car and there's two frightened Japanese people in the car looking at me. That's the kind of stuff that's going on when I'm drinking. And then there's other times I drink and I can't get drunk. It won't switch this mind off. So my body's like this, but my mind is sober. I can't get drunk. 
So it wasn't doing anything for me anymore. It was a blackout or it was an inability to get intoxicated to get that relief that I wanted. So a couple of weeks before I got sober, I'm at this work event in Japan. I get doubled up in a room. Now remember, there's no such thing as God. I want to emphasize that. I get doubled up in a room with an Irish guy called Gordon. And Gordon's one of those guys I hate. He can drink like a gentleman. He kind of looked a bit like a leprechaun. He was really cheerful. He's like, hello, I'm Gordon, and I'm Irish. <laughs> and all the Americans loved him. They were all like, oh, Gordon, you're the best. You know, I hated him. That guy could drink me under the table and act like a gentleman. And I would, I would always watch him. Anyway, him and I are in a room together. We have to share a room. And we're back in the room, and now I'm, I'm, we're both drunk. I'm crying. Okay, I'm like the, 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 the Scottish buzzkill. You know? You are having a good night, and now here's your roommate. <laughs> so this is what happened. So this is what he says to me. He says, Graham. I think you're an alcoholic. You should go to Alcoholics Anonymous. They could really help you. And that's all he said. And I went back into whatever trance I was in. And I found out years later, his dad was at that time about 20 years sober in AA. So, a couple of weeks later, I'm having a party at my house. For several years now, I didn't want to drink around nice people. I only wanted to drink with the other animals like me. Or alone, even better. I didn't want nice people to see what I became when I drank. A very, you know, belligerent, mean individual. So I was having a house party at my house. All these new friends came, co-workers. They brought potluck dishes. American people are so friendly. And uh, they brought all this stuff over to my house. I had been promising myself for weeks that I was not going to drink at that party. No matter what happens, I cannot drink that night. Because I'll... I'll come out to play and I don't want them to see that. So I remember standing there vividly, maybe 8 o'clock at night, there's music playing, they're all dancing, they're having a good time, they're having a few beers, they're nice people, and I feel absolutely terrible. I'm so self-conscious I can't even move. I can't even decide how to stand. And all these crazy thoughts are going through my head, like maybe I should put my leg out more and I'll look cool, you know. Maybe I should put my hand on my hip, you know. I'm drinking like unsweet tea or something, I don't know, some horrid drink. And then this is what happens, it just comes into my mind. Why don't you just have a beer? And see, really that's what's wrong with me. On my own, away from the group, this mind will always forget what happens to me when I pick up the first drink. It always forgets, it's guaranteed that's really what's wrong with me. It centers in my mind. So by this time, I had 12 years, dozens and dozens of experiences. Guys, one time I was in a car driving, I knocked down a pedestrian and killed the man. I didn't drive for seven years after that, and I narrowly escaped going to prison for five years. That happened in Scotland when I was 21 years old. And that's not enough to stop me. It's not enough to stop me drinking. So uh, that's what happened. I picked up a beer. And what happens to me is, once I have one, I want a lot. It's on, baby. And I went into a blackout. 
I ended up urinating on the potluck table and throwing the potluck stuff around. All the normal people left. A guy called Blake stayed, he thought it was funny. And him and I had like a big binge together that lasted another day or two. And then I woke up. I woke up curled in a ball, crying, many times before that kind of humiliation. I was no stranger to humiliation and shame and horror at what I'd done and how I treated people and what they thought of me now. I was no stranger to that at all. Those feelings were very familiar to me. And I'm crying. And what happened to me, and I suddenly had this realization that I'm always going to be this way. And no matter what I do, this is just the way it's going to be. And uh, I started to see my mom and my girlfriend from college and all these people I'd been really, really horrible to. And I realized I was a horrible, horrible person, an evil person. That's how I felt in my mind, a sick person. And that there was really no hope for me. And also I was too much of a coward to kill myself. And that's what was going through my mind. And then I thought of AA. I thought of the leprechaun telling me about AA. So I was 12-step by a drunk Irish man in Japan. <laughs> so I called AA. And this is where I start to get into a group. But I, I want to focus on this. Alcohol gave me joy. Alcohol gave me a feeling of being part of that group. Originally when I did it, and I didn't know, but that exact same thing was about to happen again. And, and I knew nothing about AA. I'd never been to AA. I didn't really know anybody in AA. I didn't know about the steps. I didn't know anything. So the guy down there in Tokyo, I'm away up in the north in the middle of nowhere. And again, remember, there's no such thing as God. I call him. He says, there's no meetings anywhere near you, but let me get the word out. Well, listen to this. The program that I went to Japan on that year took 10,000 teachers from all over the world who spoke English and brought them to Japan to teach English for one year. Out of that, we know now, I know now, five of those people were AA members of those 10,000. And just by complete coincidence, three of those five lived in houses in the villages right next to the village I was teaching in that year. <coughs> But there's no such thing as God. I asked God to help me four years before this. So, this is where it gets even crazier. The guy whose name is Greg, he's the guy that saved my life. He was married to a lady called Kim. Greg was 13 years sober. Kim was 17 years sober. And then there was a young lady called Andrea, who was about a year sober, and she was absolutely divine. And Andrea was hot there at that time of year. Andrea used to wear these tiny shorts to the meeting. And I felt if I keep coming back, maybe she'll date me. And I stayed sober on Andrea for at least four or five months, maybe six months. And I used to call her up and I'd be like, I, I would tell her how bad I was feeling. And she, she would say, you need to call your sponsor. And her sponsor told her to stay away from me. And my sponsor told me no relationships for a year. And then when we got near the year, he said, it's two years for you. <laughs> and I'm very grateful because I, 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 I would have got consumed with resentment about that relationship. And I probably would have drank again and died. Uh, but I was desperate when I came to AA. So Greg 
and Kim and Andrea and I went to a roundup, not unlike this, in Japan. It was smaller. There was maybe 50 people there. And I went in and I sat down in that group, in that home group. And I sat in a seat. It was a giant circle. For some reason, they didn't want me to share. And uh, he started to the side of me, and they all went round the room. And it went on for about an hour, and they all spoke for a minute or two maximum. And what happened to me at that meeting, in that home group, in that spiritual entity, is that about 30, 40 alcoholics from all walks of life, from all races, from all backgrounds, from all religions, or none at all, they shared with me in a simple way about their drinking, primarily. And that there was a solution to that, to living that way in Alcoholics Anonymous. I started crying, and I realized for the first time in my life that there were other people like me. And I can't tell you what a relief that was. And after the meeting, some of the men took me kind of off on my own, and... The thing that was killing me, I, was so, I felt so guilty about a lot of the domestic violence and stuff I'd participated in. And I was telling these guys this, it was always eating my lunch. And they were just like, listen, it's okay. It's okay. We've all done terrible things. And it's okay. You know, this is AA. It's, it's okay. We've all walked a rough road to get here. And... I felt accepted and I didn't feel judged. And I think what I really felt, although I didn't know it at the time, is I felt love and I felt joy inside. And that's really what the home group does for me. It really is the the focus of where that joy is that I find in recovery. It's in the home group. It's with you. It's the bright spot. It's together with you guys. So, I've been in a lot of home groups. Uh, The first home group was literally in my house. So they would come every week, the three of them, and have an AA meeting in my house on a Sunday night. And I used to really look forward to that. The second home group I was in was a correspondence home group. I was living in the middle of nowhere. So so this is so cool. So there's all these shut-in people. So these are men and women that are sober 40, 50 years. They live in the States. They can't go out to meetings anymore. So what they do is they write into this correspondence meeting. And I got this delivered to me. Someone told me about it. And so every morning for three years, I used to write a letter to some random old lady alcoholic in America. They were usually called Dolores. And, uh, and so I would, you know, I would write a letter to Dolores and say, you know, dear Dolores, I'm doing okay, you know, and, and I'm a bit shaky yesterday, thinking about Andrea a lot, you know. And, uh, and, it, and every day I would mail the letter, and then gradually all these letters came back. So we, I would write a letter, and they would write one back, and it would just come and go. So I would get dozens and dozens of letters. Sometimes I would get four or five a day, and all these old-timers were sharing with me, and that was a group right there. I never, ever met any of these people face-to-face, but they saved my life. So Greg, my first sponsor, saved my life. He, he said, Graham, you, you're an alcoholic. I believe you've already done step one and two, and I believe you're, you know, step three, you made a decision to do the rest of the steps. He said, if you don't take the steps, your mind will trick you back into drinking again. If you separate yourself from the joy, the love, the power of the EE group, 
you will drink again. So he took me through the steps. I didn't know any different. And uh, so I was in the October the 19th. I think I was making my amends early December that year. I was, he, he got me up to the ninth step. I'm very grateful to that guy. He's still sober today. They live up in Michigan. I'm going to go to that convention in Detroit, and I'm trying to organize to see if I can go to Michigan after that and see them. I haven't seen them for 13 years. But I do contact them every year on my anniversary. So anyway, like has been said uh, earlier, I'm a compulsive meeting starter. <laughs> my next sponsor was a guy called Lance. He loved the book Alcoholics Anonymous. He was also sponsoring a guy that I know, and I learned the book so I could impress Lance more than this guy. <laughs> I did my amends, competitive amends. You have to do more amends quicker than the other guy. And then the sponsor likes you the best. So again, whatever God is, is using my defects to get me to do the stuff I need to do to stay alive. And it's very clear, if I don't do the steps, I will drink again. It's just a question of when. And ever since then, I, I'm not apologizing for it. I really don't have any tolerance for AA light. I'm not mean about it anymore. I used to be. I used to run around with my big book and yeah. take everybody's inventory. And I used to apply the big book to other people and not apply it to myself. That was a, that was a, a painful phase of recovery. But now, I can honestly look you all in the eye. You do what you need to do. That's fine. You want to be in a crazy home group? Okay, that's fine. You want to be in a home group with no structure where anything goes? I'm an AA. I don't need to follow any rules. Okay, that's fine. I'll even go to those meetings. Sometimes it's a great place to meet new people. But my home group, I'm not going to be in a home group that's like that. I just can't. I can't. So me and this guy James started up a home group in Japan. There would be three or four people. That was a big night if we got three people coming. And we did that for years. He still runs one of the meetings 20 years later. He still lives there. None of the people that came to the meeting really stayed sober, but James and I stayed sober. And isn't that the point? By helping other people, I get to stay sober. Specifically taking them through the steps or trying to do that and sponsoring them. I moved back to Scotland. I decided that A in Scotland was terrible. Uh, they are all atheists over there. They really are. They hate. If you say God, they'll get you after the meeting. <laughs> they, they're, they're like militant atheists. So they're not a big fan of the big book. And they're not a big fan of the steps. So I started up a meeting in Scotland, a home group, and nobody came to it. A few people came and checked it out and then never came back. So I, did, I sat there on my own with this guy called Frank, who I later discovered was still drinking. <laughs> he seemed very relaxed about sharing a lot. So me and him would sit there for an hour at this AA meeting, and eventually I shut the meeting down because nobody came to it. And that really injured my pride. But what I learned out of that is I need at least one or two other people that are like-minded to make a commitment to do this together. So, I stayed in Scotland for a while and then I moved to the States. Uh, I landed in Virginia Beach. Really, really sick AA community. Everybody's really nice. 
you know. Uh, I, the first home group I was in was like the Sober Elks. <laughs> so it's all this treatment center sharing, you know, and they're all giving each other their business cards. And it's like they're all doing business deals at the AA meeting. That's what it was like. They're all really rich. They're all driving big cars, big, those big rings. What are those big rings they wear? Big giant heavy rings. <laughs> anyway, so I didn't really fit in with those guys, but I felt like I had to because I was scared I would drink again. So I showed up and took part. Uh, and then I started starting up some more. We started our own meeting in Virginia Beach. We connected with a guy called Al, the next guy that saved my life. And I was really crazy and miserable by this time. I'd really fallen away from AA. I kept going and I wasn't drinking, but I was living that double life again in sobriety. And uh, Al really set me straight. He said, you know, AA is full of people like you, people who have untreated alcoholism. And the good news is there's just some simple things we do here, some spiritual actions we take together that can turn the tap on and let the warm water flow again. And he was absolutely right. He called them the simple actions. And I've really been focused on that since then. So I started up a meeting in Virginia Beach and we would get speakers to come down from Richmond because the Richmond AA community is much more focused on doing the steps out of the big book and helping other people and having at least some kind of structure in the meeting. You know, can we just at least agree that we're not just going to talk about crazy stuff in the meeting? Could, could we have like a recovery-based topic? Is that too much to ask? Yeah, it is. So, anyway, we would, they would come down and speak. People like Sammy would come and speak, and Valerie, and all those guys would come down, and it just helped us tremendously uh, to get a foothold there. Then I moved to Norfolk, started up a meeting there, and uh, I, I want to talk very briefly about AA troublemakers. It's a lot controversial, but I'm going to go out on a limb. You've probably never met any of these people, so it'll be fine. just happened to me. So what I figured out was, when I'm in a home group, I like to laugh, I like to have a good time, I feel joyous when I'm with you guys in my home group. I love going to my home group. It really is the bright spot of my life. That joy is there that I used to feel with the boys when I was getting hammered. Now I feel it with the guys and the women and hey, we have a laugh. And what I realized was that that joy attracts people. They come into that meeting and they see that joy and they are drawn to it, the joy that the group is experiencing. But unfortunately, there's certain people, for whatever reason, they're attracted by the joy, they join the meeting, and then they want to attack the meeting. And specifically, they want to attack me, or the other people that are running that meeting and pull that whole thing down. And after a long time, I came to the realization that just like me many years before, really what was going on is they were very, very angry that they couldn't access that joy. Because the way to access that joy is to join with us in brotherly and harmonious action, doing these simple things together, and above all, being ready for when the new man or woman walks through the door to welcome them into this way of life and to tell them what it is they need to do 
not what they need to think or what they need to say, but specifically what you need to do to get sober. And we can do it right now. Let's get started. Let's get you a commitment and let's get started. So we had a bunch of these, I'll just call them haters. And they would come into those business meetings and try and blow the whole meeting up, you know. And over the years, I used to get very resentful at those people. I even left our home group one time because there were so many haters. I just couldn't take it anymore. I hated going to my home group. It was killing me. And we, it coincided with us moving out to the suburbs. So we started, me and two or three other guys started a meeting in Chesapeake where I live now. It's been going over five years now. And the thing about those guys that I realized finally, those guys, they're kind of crazy. But you know what? They're on the same page as I am about AA. Just basic stuff. And they're loyal. They've got my back and I've got their back. Some crazy person comes to the home group, they're not going to jump ship. We set that meeting up. We decided on the format. We have a clear, simple message of recovery that we're offering. We're not going to placate you if you show up at our home group and try and change it. You know what? There's 500 crazy meetings. Go and start another one. So, I, so I'm very unapologetic, but I learned this beautiful technique. There was a lady who shall remain nameless. She, I was surprised when she joined our home group because I knew that she hated me. But she joined the home group and then she starts coming to the business meetings with a big long list of things that are wrong with the meeting. There's not enough women speakers. Big complaint. And in previous years I would have got very angry with her. But I heard her tell her story one night. And she had had a really low bottom and she was a really, really broken person. And what I found myself able to do she, she, she's one of those people, every, every home group night, I would go up to give her a hug and she would make a mean, sarcastic comment about me. And I would just smile at her and give her a big hug and say, I'm really glad you're here tonight. And in the home group, she would go on and on in the business meeting. Once she ran out of steam, I would just say, so what you're saying is, you really don't like this home group. And then I would just shut up. And what happened is, she couldn't take it. She couldn't take us being nice to her. She couldn't take us loving her. And she created a big drama and stormed out, sent a mean email, casting me in the role of the Prince of Darkness. And I never saw her again. But the point is, standing true with my shoulder to shoulder, with my brothers and sisters in the home group is so important. Loyalty is so important. Like Sammy was talking about consistently showing up no matter what's going on in my life is so important. One time, my, my youngest son almost died when he was three days old. He got brain damage, he got strokes. My wife and I were in the hospital, he was dying. It was like something out of a bad movie. It was one in the morning, and some dudes from my home group came in and sat with us in that room while they saved my kid's life. And they've always been there. People in AA have always been there for me. They've always loved me regardless of how off the wall I've been or how off the beam I've been at any given time. And uh, there's two things I want to say and then I'll be quiet. The first thing is about safety in AA. That's been a big topic in some of the meetings. Some people have been attacked after meetings where I live. And I just want to tell you what we do in our home group. It's particularly when women join the home group. Me and there's a lady called Carter who's a home group member. Me and her and maybe Matt as well. 
we'll approach the woman when she joins the home group and we'll just tell her, listen, this is an EA home group. It's not a, a singles club. If any man or whoever gives you any unwanted attention, you come and tell us and we'll put a stop to it. And we just do that. And it's really, I want people to be able to know that they can come to our meeting and if there's any of that kind of behavior, we're not going to tolerate it. Uh, and we'll do it in a, a, as kind a way as we possibly can. Uh, so that's that piece. And then the last thing I want to talk about is just how easy it is for me to fade away from EA. My life's very full today. I have a great job. I have a wonderful woman called Heather. We've been married a long time. We've got two kids. And uh, it's very easy for me to just kind of sit back in that. I turned 20 years sober a few years ago and my friend Valerie came down and spoke. She warned my home group and said, you need to keep an eye on Graham. People always go crazy after they turn 20 years sober. And I was thinking, Valerie, you're crazy. <laughs> well, she was right. So... About a year ago, I had kind of faded. I was still going to the, the meetings, still going to the home group. My prayer life had kind of died off a lot. And I'd become very, very selfish again, very self-centered. And the guy that saved my life this time is one of the guys I sponsor called Matt. I sponsored him for seven years. He took me to the side. You see, we always used to go out after the meeting for a tackle. We called it the meeting after the meeting. And I would go every week. We always used to meet on Sunday mornings, a big group of guys, and we just talk about a recovery topic. Not any meeting, just we'll meet in a Starbucks and talk, 10, 15 of us. And I had stopped doing those things because I was busy, my kid was sick, all these bulletproof excuses. And Matt came to me and he said, Graham, I'm going crazy. He said, I'm really, really unhappy and I really miss being together with you guys. He said, can we start doing that again? And in my head, I'm rolling my eyes. I'm like, oh my God, this guy doesn't know how busy I am. But I was like, you know what, you're right. I'm pretty miserable too. So we both surrendered and committed to just doing that again. And I have to tell you, after the home group on Wednesday night, we go out for tacos. You know, sometimes somebody puts the sombrero on. And uh, we just have a big laugh. It's, you know, and, and that's that joy again. And then Sunday morning, all these guys are coming we're talking about recovery, we're talking about alcoholism, we're talking about our lives. So the group is at the center of my recovery. Without the group, it says clearly in the pamphlet in my pocket, most people can't recover without the group. So I need that more than ever, that connection with you guys. If I could do this on my own, I would have done it. If I could stay sober on my own, I would stay sober. And I see it every day, every single day. One horrible case recently. But anyway, people come to AA, their backside's on fire, they're super active in AA, they do the simple actions, they get sober, their life turns around, and then they fade away. They slowly stop doing the things that keep them sober. They get distracted, I get distracted by the fruits of sobriety. And the next thing you know, I'm on my own again. And like I said at the start, when I'm on my own, away from the joy, away from you guys, this mind will always trick me back into drinking and forget that I'm an alcoholic. So I wish everybody well. Thank you.
Can we uh, give Graham another round of applause?